0: ancient art of yoga, what is now synonymous with the new age and self-improvement, was once akin to shamanism and the magical arts. Today, we have a returning guest joining us on the show to discuss his path through the dark and the light sides of yoga. Yogi Zorananda joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, for a third time to talk about this and his excellent new podcast titled The Yoga Connection. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Mystic Mark and enjoy this episode with Gizor
1: Everyone listening to this is that we're not a part of the fucking shitty bloodline. You know, we don't have to worry about actually reincarnating as these terrible people every single generation because they're stuck here. Like, that's the reality. Like, those elite, they made a pact that they wanted to rule this realm. They're fucking stuck here. They're never advancing. They're just here. And so the illusion is that. They're in control when they're not. They're imprisoned. And we're here to learn that we actually have the freedom and that we, in the solitude of our home, without them even knowing, we can sit down, we can do the breathing techniques, we can do the asana practice, we can do the meditation, and we can check out and we can learn how to get into the actual divine realm of the earth which is safeguarded and it circles back to all these sinister yogis these people who think that they can be on the level of these elite and that they can fight them and they can use the darkness and they end up ruining their lives and so the secret is that compassion unconditional love and empathy and connection to your divinity is the way out
0: Ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with a thrice returning guest. That's right. This is Yogi Zorananda Glamochila's third time on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I believe one of those episodes is only available on the Patreon currently, and that might occur. Over the next few years, you might see some of those older episodes start to disappear and and go on into the Patreon, so folks please go and support that. But before we get too carried away in plugging this show, our friend Yogi Zorananda has quite an interesting story with podcasting in my opinion. He was one of the first guests I've had on my show and I was enthralled, I loved everything he had to say. We had a great conversation and afterwards i said brother you gotta have your own podcast or or this was probably even during the conversation itself and then over the past year he's done that show and recently evolved the concept and i really love it so without further ado yogi zorananda welcome to the show brother and if you could introduce yourself to maybe the folks who are new to this show maybe they just found this episode for the first time and then tell us a little bit about the shift and and the new image of your your podcast the new mission
1: thanks man yeah it's a pleasure to be back it's a pleasure to be on your show and yeah the evolution was pretty simple i was just noticing that the the direction that i want to go and the kind of way that i wanted to like showcase myself and the people that I'm interviewing was very clearly aligned in my understanding of yoga and and the way that I want to represent it. And I actually took some notes from you and I took some notes from other podcasters and, you know, how you want to make changes and how it's, it's sometimes important and it's necessary to take a look kind of critically and objectively at what's going on. And so, you know, I remember the story of you saying, Before my family thinks I'm crazy, it was called something else. And you notice that even for yourself, you just needed a revamp. And as soon as you made that revamp, as soon as you relaunched it, it just felt right. And it was more harmonious and it was more aligned with what you want to represent and how you want to go about it. So I took that into consideration and then i was looking at some other people who say for example like lex friedman where their name is just in the podcast itself and then i looked at just like the image and the thumbnail i was like well i want people to see me and i want people to know that this podcast is a part of who i am as a yogi and as someone who you know upholds yoga in a in a good light so I just kind of put those together and it was on a whim, you know, it wasn't something that I didn't really, that I thought about for too long. I just knew one day the desire to make that change came up. And honestly, I was also feeling a little bit stagnant over the last few months in uploading and being attentive to it. And I just felt like having a fresh start to it would really help and it and it absolutely did and what happened is from making that change i was able to travel to salt spring island where my yoga teacher yoga rishi vishuketu lives and i was able to interview him and that was the first episode that i was able to upload as this like new kind of podcast so that felt like a really great blessing and a synchronicity and then from there I've just been really attentive to who I've been wanting on the podcast and also revisiting some folks that I interviewed in the past that I really like like Zarnu and yeah so I feel really good about it now and I'm in a new place and you know the the year has gone by and now I'm seeing how I can start setting goals, right? Because throughout the year, I wasn't really setting like, okay, well, I want to reach this many viewers. How am I going to get that? Now, you know, seeing how you've done it and seeing how some others have done it, it's really inspiring me and motivating me to continue on this journey and just really enjoy the whole process because yeah, it's, it's really, it's really fun and and interesting to, have amazing conversations with people
0: agreed yeah man i'm very happy to see that you put more time and attention into it and and sometimes that's all you need you know it's like eventually the hermit crab outgrows his shell and goes and finds a new one and eventually you know you grow out of that one too And and i definitely feel that way with this show i mean you you made the comparison to my old show the bud triangle and and how the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast sort of was born out of that. The friends that I did the Bud Triangle podcast with joined me for the first, you know, 40 or 50 episodes of this podcast. And I don't know if they were present when I had you on the first time, but eventually I realized, like, yeah, that as much as I love my friends... They're kind of holding me back. I feel like I've evolved as a host. I don't need them to rely on anymore if the conversation gets stale or awkward, which happened a lot those days. And and yeah, you just, you know, the only way to do some or to learn is to to actually take practice and do it. You know, I feel like a lot of people get caught up in, oh, what's the name going to be? What's this going to look like? Who am I going to have on? And really, you know... You just got to try it, because even though the first name wasn't what you're using now, that was the bridge that got you to this even better name that's more concise and explains to people exactly what they're getting into, and to your point, you know, You you want to have an image of yourself in that artwork. And I am kicking myself that I'd never thought of this, but it's so it's so brilliant because, I mean, what you do, people want to know that they're listening to someone that's like healthy and fit. So it definitely helps to, like, show that and you are an extremely fit person. So, yeah, no shame there. Shirtless Lotus position is is found on your artwork I don't know if I could do that but yeah that very cool man I really appreciate it and I appreciate the friendship that's blossomed here in between you and I in this podcast realm because you know how rare is that that people you know on the other side of continents become friends so it's truly you know for me a pleasure to see you grow and one of the ideas that I had a while ago was like, you know, people want to talk about books. You know, it's not always easy to get the the author on. Sometimes we're lucky and we're able to talk to our favorite authors, but that's not always the case. And this book in particular, I felt a little unequipped to tackle in maybe a one-on-one interview. I would recommend maybe you find out if David Gordon White could join you on your show. But yeah, I I felt like this would be the type of topic better approached with a friend who's more familiar in yoga than I. So I said, hey, yogi, check out Sinister Yogis. It's a strange book. It's kind of, you know, in my opinion, an outlier. You see a lot of yogic material that's very sort of austere and pure and like very based on the, the practice itself. You don't see that many books that actually approach the history of yoga you might find the history of particular teachers but I found it fascinating because you know when I was younger I would associate a yogi and a monk as probably more similar but after reading this book I would say a yogi and a shaman are equally as synonymous as maybe a yogi and a monk and and maybe we're even given a sort of watered down version of what a yogi is because of the you know the fact that the west sort of Gave us the context through which to understand these Eastern philosophies, just through the fact that, you know, speaking for myself as an American, you know, we're taught to view things through the lens of Western culture always when we're presented history in school. So, yeah, it's not surprising to me that they left this out. But I love drawing this connection because it makes so much sense that the yogis would be you know, practicing all these mystical things and it wasn't just sort of a... And, and maybe watered down is the wrong way to put it, but maybe my impression of yoga was more of a physical fitness, very practical, but also extremely spiritual, you know, whereas shamanism and such has less rigorous, less of a rigorous physical nature in some ways, but also more of an emphasis on the mystical and i think my assumptions were all wrong after reading this book i mean it seems like the yogis are doing a lot of strange things at least in the past but what are your thoughts on this book and and thank you for electing to to join me for this
1: yeah it would honestly be great to either you know hear him on a podcast and actually explain his thought process in formulating the the book itself because yeah it is a pretty heavy book from like from as far as i've gone into reading it it's terminology heavy so it's he's really doing a good job on using the sanskrit terms for the vedic scriptures and and the names of the like uh, the poets and, and the yogis themselves and the characters in the stories that are depicted in these old old tales of like kings and queens and consorts and and yogis and and likewise if if I had the opportunity to interview him that would be a blessing because to to have a critical voice in something that's in the, in the Western world and in the modern world that's especially in the yoga community really glamorizes the practice. Right. And especially the practice that you see now with all the yoga postures, all the breathing techniques and all the meditations, it is seemingly fluffy. Right. And he, 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 Points towards that so well and showing that, like, no, this shit wasn't fluffy and it was a little fucked up. And that's what I appreciated about his languaging and how he was going about explaining the nature of these yogis and a truer essence of their intention and why they were operating the way that they were. And the clearest thing that I got out of that was essentially it seemed like he had a bias towards really not respecting yoga the way that we should. And I still have much to read, so that story might kind of change. I was kind of perusing through the later chapters. I was kind of seeing that he does kind of go into the kind of like the power of yoga in divinity and what we're kind of normalized in as, as yoga teachers or yogis currently. And so while I was reading, I made sure to take everything for a grain of salt because it seems like he is taking a kind of philosophical stance. And the thing that we need to know about philosophy and philosophers in general is their task is to pick everything apart and to find flaws and to prove other philosophers wrong and to prove that their stance on the topic is more accurate so that they can bring in their theories or their ideas to either expand on the topic or totally undermine the past philosophies, and to show that there's a newer way of of representing it. And I remember in university, like going through all kinds of philosophy classes and from like Greek philosophy to Asian philosophies, to epistemology, to logic and reason, all of that. And kind of seeing this common thread of philosophers kind of bashing on each other and trying to prove each other wrong. So I kind of got that sense from him that he was taking this angle of of showing how the yogis of the past were kind of terrible people, that they were You know, animating dead bodies. They're literally leaving their body to enter into a dead body and then to just terrorize people. If it's to try to influence the love of a queen or to kill a king or to animate a bird and to use that bird to manipulate something or even animating or taking control of living bodies while they sleep, it really paints this picture of this negative connotation. That makes sense with the title of the book of Sinister Yogis that there is this component of the historical context of yoga from india and this is and the good thing about all this is that it's it's not coming from his opinion or assumption he's really diving into rich historical texts and pulling this out from authors of of you know indian scholars from hundreds and hundreds of years ago and poets from hundreds and hundreds of years ago and cross referencing from other parts of India. So he'll find something from the Mahabharata that depicts this one Yogi. And then he'll find a text from another part of India depicting a similar, the same Yogi in a similar context. And then something from Tibet or something from outside of India that kind of shows that there's this story that's being passed around about these people who want to disrupt things in kingdoms and in in the lives of, of people. So it's an interesting read in that regard. And what I was thinking in that process is like, okay, if, if, if this book is out there and he, he's kind of has this mission of wanting to educate people on truly what yoga is, you know, what, what effect does that have on yoga now? So it would, that's where I think it'd be really great to have a conversation with him and to ask him like, okay, well, you know, do you think there's any goodness in the continuation of yoga on this planet in the way that it's going, or would you, you know, suggest to people to just abandon it because there is this sinister thing, because, you know, one of the questions or one of the points that I wrote here is, you know, who can we really trust as an authority of yoga now, right? And so if there's this underlining theme in the teachings of yoga that's like really rooted in this sinister way, could people like Sadhguru or people like Nityananda or even Muji or, you know, whoever is in the top echelons of the yoga world now, like Ravi Shankar, whoever, right? You know, is there something we're not seeing that, you know, David Gordon-White is is shining a light on because of his research. So I, I appreciate it in that sense. And then I also kind of wonder if, you know, he's caught up into something in a bias in the story of, of trying to prevent people from having this kind of experience.
0: Mm. Yeah. And, you know, you're wise to point that out. And I definitely think he deserves to, you know, speak for, speak for himself as the author, but it's important to remember when we talk about yoga, we, we're given this very, you know, modern impression of it, and you described it really well. I kind of beat around the bush, and and what I meant to say earlier was they had they have this sort of physiological fixation on modern mm-hmm. yoga. It's very physiological, and people all 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 have the implicit understanding that there is a spiritual awareness that comes from this, but that is not like the TV yoga. That is not the commercialist yoga. You know, that's more of a, you know, seek it and you shall find it type of thing. You're not going to find, unfortunately, a spiritual, in my opinion, and I could be wrong, but you're not going to find much of a spiritual angle at your traditional, like strip mall yoga class because it's, it's become sort of a physiological exercise based thing. But, you know, what I was about to get into is we have pre-Vedic, which for those who don't know about the stages of Indian history, but the pre-Vedic period is before 3000 BC. And that's about where they say yoga probably originated, you know, 500 BC, but they have carvings of people in yoga postures that date as far back as 3000 BC. So, Although it wasn't written down until about 500 BC, it's a very, very old thing. So to your point, yeah, how could you define something that's been in existence for this long if you're just, you know, the world's most popular yoga teacher? It's like we really need historians like this gentleman, biased or not, to sort it through. And, and me, maybe I'm biased to have a sort of syncretist or universalist approach but when I see the, the black and white magic theme going on in yoga, it makes sense because that's what we hear in shamanism. We hear that with witchcraft and European folklore. We hear that with the shamanism in Australia, Africa. I mean, it's really a ubiquitous thing. And and in my opinion, yoga might give us a window if we go back far enough into what those other cultures, mystical practices, quite a possibly were like before they, you know, evolved throughout the years but yeah it strikes me as something that is really under stood very poorly there's few people that write about this beyond this guy here Gordon David Gordon White
1: yeah and it, and it makes sense why in the western world yoga is very new it's really within 200 years of the propagation and from two specific yogis and mystics from India, Swami Vivekananda and Yogananda. And the th- way that I've come to start to understand yoga's place, at least in my life, is is not so much the term. It's not so much the word itself. It's really what has come about synchronistically from placing yoga in my mind. So over the last 12, 13 years of really focusing on, on yoga, life events started to happen and very particular life events that led me to traveling the world and when I held a presence of yoga in my consciousness, it opened up opportunities to explore other kind of realms that are in parallel and align with the earth. And those experiences are simply going to ashrams, going to different yoga schools, but then also exploring the nature of the planet. So going to Thailand, staying on an island in Thailand, going to India in Rishikesh and exploring the foothills of the Himalayas, going to Brazil and going to the Amazon jungle, going to Costa Rica and all over the United States. And so... What it seems to me is that when you take off the mantle of being a yoga practitioner, the underlining flow that is a part of that responsibility is a spiritual upgrade where your mundane life starts to level up, where, That like feeling of routine of every day doing the same thing, right? You still wake up, you brush your teeth, you have breakfast, you go to work, but the moment you decide to, okay, I'm going to go to this yoga studio or I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do this practice and I'm going to do this meditation. I'm going to move my body. I'm going to connect to my body. I started to think of it as like the start and the stop of a song, right? So when you put on your favorite song, it takes you into that world. And as soon as it starts, the first starting notes and it takes you on this whole journey and then it ends. So in that time frame of listening to that song, you have your headphones in, you have your eyes closed, you're listening to this song and the whole outside world shuts off. That happens in a yoga practice where you start, you do your intro OM, you do your intro mantra and the song of movement starts to happen. And then you move through not just postures, not just what will make you stronger, more flexible. You're moving through the melody of all the sensations. You're moving through emotions. You're moving through thought patterns and thought processes and a whole hour goes by and suddenly you're in meditation and all of that movement has aligned and opened and has done something fundamentally to you that in your just day-to-day beta mind operation won't take you to. It's all of that movement, all of that processing, all of the feeling of emotions, of the mind, of the breath takes you into a meditation where then you literally enter into a new world. And in that new world, it's personalized. So it's only you that's going to experience that. And in that realm, you are going to start to be given guidance. And through that guidance, when you come back and the song ends, the movement and the meditation and that practice song ends, you OM out, you come back, suddenly you look around and things start moving in a different way. You start thinking to yourself, okay, how can I start living differently? How can I start being differently? And... Now that yoga practice wasn't just, oh, I want to get fit. Now it's fundamentally in your bones and in your being. I want to be a human being that is fundamentally evolved every single day through moving into this realm via this practice. And it's more of a vehicle than it is just a word, right? Wow. (laughs)
0: Wow. What a way to sum it up, brother. Yeah, I agree, man, and it's 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 been crystallized through time, you know, this practice over and over and over. And, you know, to the point earlier about, you know, this universal aspect, it almost feels like they've in a way figured out how to or the technique of initiating vision or initiating actual projection, or, or priming the body for these states, whereas other rituals seem to do it with less efficiency. You know, they've almost made a science out of it, which anytime we use science in conjunction with spirituality, people get confused, but, I mean, what is science? It's, it's knowing, and, and that is the essence of knowing, is practicing this stuff and experimenting.
1: Yeah. And there are level like initiatory levels within this, and it's really something that we all are so accustomed to, but we just don't think of it. Right. So if you were to think of yourself as a toddler, every grade you go through in school is an initiatory level of education. And so it doesn't make sense for a toddler to start in kindergarten or grade one, and then the next grade to be grade 12 or university, right? So there's this need for a step-by-step process of getting to the point where you have the capacity and the wherewithal to actually comprehend what is being expressed and taught in the higher levels of education. And so when you enter into the yoga practice, the first step is wherever you are, literally in the city that you're in, what studio you go to, or what friend introduces it to you. And it's that that point, you make a choice within yourself. Is this something that I continue going deeper in, or do I just stay at this level? And most people stay at the first level. So imagine you start grade one and you just stay at grade one. And so you just do grade one for 12 years and then longer and you're adult and you're still in grade one, where do you think you're going to go from there? Right. And so what I feel my mission is, or my responsibility is, is to educate people that the path of deepening into your level of spirituality and upgrading through more and more levels is a commitment that is lifelong. And it's really no different than a marriage or a commitment to owning a home or a commitment to some friendships or a commitment to a job that is your career, that we normalize commitments and dedication to things that obviously bring us like financial security or love. But when it comes to spirituality, it seems like really the only commitments is, you know, dogmatic religions where you have Christianity or you have Islam or you have Judaism or Mormonism or Jehovah witness, whatever the top ones are that because of whatever inherent there is, there's this kind of underlining fear of stepping into a spiritual role as a human on your own accord. And that's what I found with yoga is that it gives that opportunity that you yourself as an individual, you can say, okay, I want to explore what spirituality means to me, but I don't want to be in an institution that may keep me at a level without me knowing it and just keep me there. Right. Cause that's seemingly what a lot of the churches do, unless you're going to become a priest or a Bishop or an Imam or whatever, right. That as a participant, as a dedicated devotee, you're kind of kept at, you know, grade one or grade two or grade three, where the practice of yoga, it, it's up to you as an individual to seek how you go deeper and deeper into those levels. And for me, fortunately, I've had the wherewithal to navigate this world and to enter into deeper levels and to have great kind of phenomenal experiences. And to come out of it in a way where I can articulate these things and to look and to say, look, I'm just a normal human being too. I have a day job, you know, I work Monday to Friday, you know, I have rent, I have bills, you know, I'm not this dude that's saying I'm a yogi and I, you know, live lavishly off of doing retreats and all this stuff. No, I'm taking yoga into a context where you can still be a normal human being and you can go very fucking deep into yourself and you can become a profoundly spiritual presence and still live a normal life. And I think with everything that I've studied, and and this is the thing I like to tell people is like, a lot of what I study isn't just from the internet of my own accord. This is also coming from academic study of like really diving into the philosophy of religion, really diving into all the different Asian philosophies and religions, really diving
0: into and when you talk about Gita and stuff, when you're looking at these systems, where does morality come into play with a system like yoga? Because It is something to your point that individuals can take on seemingly by themselves, have an all-encompassing holistic effect on their life, a positive effect on their life. But then we have to rectify or reconcile this history of quote unquote sinister yogis who, you know, maybe learn just enough to go and use their powers for selfish or, you know, egotistical reasons.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's a great point. And luckily, and, you know, fortunately for myself, I made sure that I gravitated to the teachers that were educated on yoga history and especially Ashtanga yoga and the eight limbs. And this is where the morality piece comes in that is similar to the Ten Commandments, where You also have 10 do's and don'ts of how you operate in the world, right? Of like, do no harm, do not steal, manage your sexual energy through either possible celibacy, or you're just mindful of your promiscuity or whatever to cleanliness and self-study and contentment and commitment where the languaging. Between the two are very different, right? Where the 10 commandments are like, thou shall not, thou shall not. It's a finger pointing, right? It's like you, you will not do this. You will not do this. So it's really this like dynamic of authority where you have someone on one end bestowing authority to the the common people where in Ashtanga yoga and the Yamas and Yamas, there's no one there. There's no one there bestowing authority it is just guidelines it's just saying here's ahimsa non-harm that's it here's non-stealing and that's it right there th- because it's it's coming from a context of there is no real master right it all the mastery is coming from within so the guidelines are there to show okay if you follow these you can achieve self mastery Mm -hmm. rather than if you follow these, you will be taken into the kingdom of the master. Right. And then if you're brought into the kingdom of the master, then, you know, you'll be truly loved. Then you'll be in the grace of God, right. Where it's flipped, where it says, follow these to the best you can understand them the best you can, observe the effects, and you will see within yourself that your self-mastery will bestow a presence of divine abilities. And I like that much more because then it it's, holds me accountable to my presence in life and, and how I'm presenting myself.
0: So is it that is it that the more accountable the more one improves themselves for altruistic reasons, let's say the more access they have, so to speak, to these spiritual levels, is it a sort of self regulating? Because, again, you know, we talk about these folks who leave their bodies and, and reanimate a corpse and then go and terrorize people. I mean, we're talking about zombies, vampire yogis. I mean, this book goes all over the place. So it is interesting yeah. to to juxtapose, you know, what I'm hearing from you about, you know, your understanding and your background with yoga, because. This is a sensible thing. This is something that makes a lot of sense from a spiritual perspective. And when it comes to the sort of shadier aspects of yogic history, I'm like, well, you know, let me bring up an example. You had a couple different teachers in your yogic experience, right? I mean, there's only been maybe two or three, I, I don't know for sure, but I remember you telling a story about the first yoga mm-hmm. teacher that you had, and he didn't seem like he was exactly, you know, of great moral character based on some of the things he was doing, uh, let's say outside of the the studio, yoga studio, but even within the the business itself, it felt like uh, he was sort of taking advantage of people. And, and that's exactly what we, we see in this book. We have, to your point earlier, you know, like Yogi's playing the role of jesters or even assassins or sorcerers in these like stories of Kings and Queens, you know, goings on. Yeah. And
1: I think the, the paradox really is that the, the duality that is shown in between like evil and goodness or divinity and whatever opposes divinity is that the, the cities or the like supernatural abilities are very temptuous. And in the case of, of my first teacher, so Swami Vivekananda Saraswati, he's this like big Romanian man who's like, his first name was Narciss, which is like hilarious. From what I remember in the contrast between the two times I went and and studied at his school is in 2012 it was seemingly the like golden age of that school where his presence was quite powerful and actually quite lovely at the same time. And he had many very astute yoga practitioners who had been with him already for 10 years. They've been doing his practices every day for hours a day. And some of them that I met were really amazing people. And they were like really powerful in their own right and in their presence and everything that they were doing. And When I went back in 2016, there was an evident corruption that was taking place. And when I saw him, I could see that there was a stark difference between who I met in 2012 and who I was seeing at that time. And then I got to learn that many of his students had left and they completely renounced him as a teacher, completely renounced the practice. And I was fortunate enough to have to get all this information from a friend of mine who had been there for like 10 years, who was the receptionist and she had done all the practices and. It seems like there's a safeguard for the power of what yoga can do. And the safeguard is that if at any point you think you can handle the darkness of it, you think you can go into with your light into all of the evil that is represented in like the kind of black magic of yoga, it, it will, no matter what, corrupt you. And it seems like he was kind of playing with fire and that he abandoned some of his original ways of of practicing and meditating to try to use the darker realm of yoga in a way that can grow his business or grow his teachings and and I think that's kind of like a curse When you're a Westerner approaching these things where it seems like in India, the kind of darker aspects of the practice that, for example, is like really embodied by the Agoris, right? The Agoris are these yogis that cover themselves with the ash of dead bodies. They like eat feces and they like eat human flesh and they they're drunk and high all the time. But then when you talk to them and, you know, you can even just go on YouTube and look up like Aghori, it's A-G-H-O-R-I, yogis, there's like vice documentaries and stuff. And there's documentaries of people who just go and talk to these Aghoris and and they're very attuned to what they're doing and why they're doing it. But their fundamental is non-harm. Like they're doing these things where it's out of things that have already happened. So like them sp- covering their bodies with the ashes of, of dead people. It's because there was already someone who died and was burned in a ceremony and their ashes were there and they're allowed to come and do that because it's a part of the culture and it's a part of the practice. But when you're a Westerner and you learn about some of these like old weird tantric practices, for example, some of the original tantric practices is like, drinking alcohol or eating meat and doing a ceremony where the meat is the flesh of Kali, or it's the flesh of a goddess and the wine is the blood of that goddess. And it's really similar to like in Christianity and Catholicism, right? Where it's like, you're eating the, you're drinking the blood of Christ. You're eating the flesh of Christ, right? Like there's this bridge between them. And what it seems like with Narcissus or Swami Vivekananda is that it Became chaotic, and it became his control, and his lust took over, and what inevitably led to his ruin was contracting, I think, chlamydia, and spreading cl- chlamydia throughout the community of of agama yogis, and then from there, people catching wind and learning that he had been. Basically, he abandoned all of his practices. He was no longer meditating. He was no longer doing any breathing techniques or any asana. He was just having sex with women. And he would have like three to five women every day that would come to him. He had his own like little consort of of practitioners.
0: How does a man even have the energy for that or the patience?
1: (laughs) Well, that was the thing. I think what happens is that people grow old and they get deluded. Like it's delusional. Essentially. He's like, he's delusional. And to him, he's in this whole own world of believing that what he's doing is by divine rights. And that what he's doing is actually healing these people. But then if you just look up B Schofield, so like B E s-c-h-o field she wrote articles for i think bbc or something else in the uk and like huffington post about these like 30 women who were sexually molested by him and they all told the same story that he had this belief that his dick was this rod of god and that he could like bring them to divine ecstasy. And they all said, it's just like, it sucked. Like it was the worst fucking experience ever. So, you know, kind of like tying this to the whole sinister thing. I think like he became his own like sinister yogi, just through being delusional and not being able to have anyone outside of himself with a critical mind to be like, Hey man, like what's going on? Because he was the founder of this school and he was in control of everything. And all of his kind of minions looked up to him and they were all kind of afraid of, of really, you know, stepping on any toes because What I found being there in 2016 is like, there was this like weird competitive edge between people. And because there was this exile of many of his top students that some of the other ones that stayed were kind of vying for power. And from my friend, Sarah, who's explaining to me, like everything that was going on, it really felt things got muddied and it really didn't feel good. And I feel so fortunate and grateful that I was able to be an observer of this and not be caught up into it because there's many people who quit everything in their life. They like abandon their families. They left their home country to come and study with this person. And then just imagine where all that comes crumbling down. You're left by yourself and you're like oh shit, I have nowhere to go. My family doesn't talk to me because I abandoned them. I've left my home country for the last like six years. I can't go back there. What do I do? Right? So it seems like that safeguard is really there to protect the sanctity of what yoga is and what it can be for someone like my teacher, Yogi Vishaketu, who is a legit Himalayan yoga master. And he has his PhD in yoga. He's created an amazing school called the Akanda Yoga. And he displays himself authentically and there's no drama around him like y- you can look up everything you can about him you can try to prove me wrong right now look up Yog rishi vishvaketu and try to find anything and there and there isn't because he's legitimately a wholesome person and That to me is the dichotomy that I was able to learn of, of someone who strays from their path and becomes delusional and everything breaks down, becomes chaotic. And someone who stays true to the tradition and stays true to their connection to divinity and just grows substantially. Mm. And so it's something to be careful of. And to step into confidently. And that's really the biggest one is like to be confident and yet humble and to have humility and to be in a place where you're like, I, I don't know what's, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, but when I do the practice, it helps change me in a, in a greater way than I could imagine or expect.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Well, and it it does feel like that is the bane of tantric sex is like you you get into practicing it. And if you don't have a consensual partner, you really can't be a a playboy about it because that'll catch up to you. And it sounded like this guy was more than just a playboy. He sounds very delusional, maybe even delusions of grandeur. And there certainly is this element that If you have sex enough and you you reach a certain point through sexual contact with another practitioner, you're supposedly able to unlock levels of your kundalini rising through your spine into your pineal gland or your parietal gland. I don't know all the details, but it seems like almost too good to be true, especially considering how many people seem to take that left-hand path if you will of like abusing their sexual nature rather than well i mean look at monks for example i've made this comparison already a couple times in this conversation but we're taught that a lot of these spiritual people are celibate so i feel like Tantric sex is almost like this underbelly of spirituality where people are like, oh, well, yeah, you could go the, the celibate boring route or you can do the fun way, ta- the tantric way, which seems like a deception there, you know, and, and look at this guy as an example. I mean, do you know of other yogis that use the similar sexual practices, but with, you know, right relationship and, and non-harm and all these other principles?
1: yeah I do I was fortunate enough to meet few gentlemen from coping gone from the agama school one actually like entertaining one is named shaft Uden. he's from the UK and he was interviewed in a vice documentary and he right now is like a kind of leading figure in the Tantra world and it's it's great to see him because he's really actually authentic. And he's really quite lovely. And he, you know, he has the opportunity to, you know, work with many just like beautiful women. But the thing is, it's, there's no doubt that there's an energetic exchange between humans through sexual intercourse, right? There's something very powerfully emotional, especially when there's so much pleasure and there's so much stimulus, and there's it's orgasmic and it's connective. That if you are going to go the tantric route, especially as a man, especially as someone who knows that you know they do very well in pleasuring women, that the temptation to want to sleep with any woman that you can and that you have this air about you that you're like oh my god i was just able to make this chick orgasm like five times and we had sex for two and a half hours that man i i need like maybe it's my calling to do that for other women maybe it's my calling to be a tantric lover and just like you know go around and do this and and that's where i think the trap is and that's where i think the delusion starts mm. is well, uh, it's
0: almost like the society of like commodification of roles and like you know this idea that oh well if you're good at something you must capitalize on that and and make it a, into your career and Really, it feels to me like we're all just sort of neutered and yoga helps us reach what we're meant to be. And it's really easy to take advantage of your, you know, meant to be state when so many people are lacking these qualities. And of course, you know, if you can impress one woman, one woman in that way, it certainly makes you wonder what's possible but yeah i prefer to to keep the peace with the one woman i have i find that it's easier to manage than the playboy life even though i really never experienced that but geez yeah shaft wherever you are out there please we'd love to interview you sir (laughs) because i don't know how he does it but yeah it it doesn't seem like like it is a, a a feat that can be accomplished just because of how diluted our society is when it comes to sex it may be possible in other cultures but at least in our western culture to your point it, yeah it feels like that's the trap is when you go and try to make this into a sort of yeah. uh, i don't know I really no other any other way to describe it other than like a commodity
1: The like the tricky thing about it is we're all so naively impressionable, especially now with this like new addiction to social media and the ability for any woman to make themselves look like a model and for many men to strive towards having a certain kind of physique, a certain kind of lifestyle to being rich and famous that. It seems like there's this, and I I, have been like thinking about this a lot where I think the elite and the powers that kind of control tech and they control industry is they're really all educated on this stuff. They're not fucking dumb, you know? When, and, and I've had the opportunity to, kind of, to find interviews on a lot of these people and, and to hear them talk about their pursuit of meditation and yoga and, and mystical studies where there is a spiritual war going on and this spiritual war has levels to it. And it's just like a video game. And if you get caught in the level of temptation and you get caught in the level of materialism and you're swayed into what, you know, all the bikini models are showing you, if you're swayed into what the media is telling you and you're caught in that, that's on you. And it's up to you to learn how to find the right channels to impress upon you a way of being where you can snap out of the hypnosis, you can snap out of the psychological control and you can start to actually navigate the spiritual war so that you're on an equal playing field with the people who have become your masters. And that's the thing that people are blind to see is that a lot of the elite are our masters Mm -hmm. and we have to actually come to terms with that. And we have to see what kind of relationship we have with the people who run corporations, with the people who run energy and, and everything is that we're in basically servitude to them. And the way out of that is by advancing ourselves spiritually so that energetically we're actually on an equal playing field and how we become equal in not in their eyes, but in our own eyes is that we don't fall prey to the temptations. And so then our presence is protected and we have a deep connection with who we are, who we were and who we will be. And that there's a bridge between all of that, because what I've started to understand in consciousness is that consciousness is not bound by space and time. Consciousness is space and time. And so that all that ever has happened, all that will happen and all that is happening is all happening. And that's the totality of who you are. And so no one in any elite circle has any right to control that, but they can tempt you to create a permission slip where you forget that. And so what I feel like I've done is that I've remembered that in the totality of my consciousness, I'm the one in control of all that. And they no longer have the permission to keep me at bay. And so however long it takes for me to fully snap into my power and to come to a place where my financial success is abundant, my reach in the world is abundant, that's on my own time. And I will not have anyone subdue me because of their little shitty tricks of temptation. And this is all stuff that we've heard before, but I just really want people to understand is that taking up the mantle of being a spiritual warrior is a dedication for the rest of your life. And when you decide right now or whenever to take up that mantle and you take up arms, that's, shit will start happening and you will be fucking tested and there will be forces that come in and it's not going to be necessarily people. It's not like it's going to be the men in black or it's going to be fucking, you know, like CIA or shit like that. It's going to be different. It's going to come in dreams. It's going to come in weird setbacks. It's going to come in failures. It's going to come in weird communications. It's going to become in heartbreak. It's going to come in because what you're up against are universal forces where it's not people involved. It's literally your higher self. And it's, it gets tricky to try to communicate, but how I found yoga helpful is that it's essentially your suit of armor in this battle for consciousness and attention and your energy. And so you have to take a pretty serious look at what the fuck is going on in your life and why shit is happening. And as much as we want to blame others and as much as we want to blame, you know, whether it's politically odds, fucking those stupid commies faults or whatever, right? It's always your responsibility. And it's always you. And so remove the obscure word of yoga and just think of unification. How do I unify my internal world with my external world? And you'll see what the blockages are. You'll see what the programming is there to prevent you. And you'll see how it is that all of these you know, top, top corporations are all there at play to essentially be the opponent. Like they're just there until you can level up. Cause once you level up and once you've gone beyond your limitations, they take a step back and there's plenty of people in this world where they're operating fucking at high capacity and they're doing crazy fucking shit and the elite can't touch them. Right. We have examples of that. Like why
0: you know, words,
1: I don't know. Why? No, like, no, 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 like, no, no. Audrey Let me Marcus or even Joe Rogan or yeah. even, you know, you name it. There are people who are operating at levels that elites are like, you win, we can't do shit. You got past our guard and yeah.
0: Oh, wise words brother and and
1: sorry I went on a bit of a Oh <laughs> no no no. no. Oh, man I got a little heated there. You kept adding I uh, you, you added my beer so maybe that's a bit of the beer talking.
0: No, you kept adding <laughs> logs to the fire and it's a bright bright signal fire that's drawing more and more enlightenment near. So no, no need to apologize and I do want to rein it in a little bit as much as I appreciate the wisdom that you're sharing. I want to kind of center back on this topic with Sinister Yogis and and this idea, cause you mentioned within that rant, the concept that it's like leveling up and you, you gotta get past this level of temptation. Well, a lot of people like this video game comparison and and it sort of lends itself to this whole simulation theory idea, which I don't necessarily subscribe to, but it's interesting when you consider that these Yogis had the ability to take themselves out of their body even for long enough to where this book describes it as a yogic suicide where where they leave their body permanently behind other stories mention you know a dead king being brought back to life by a yogi upon his death like at his funeral and and he sort of uses all this sex magic with the queen and kind of reminds me a little bit about some of the osirian uh, isis (laughs) myths that i've been learning about recently but yeah when it comes to astral projection you had mentioned before we started recording that you have a connection to this sort of portion of the book in a way through your own astral experiences we did spend some time talking about that on your past appearances here on the my family think some crazy podcast but after reading sinister yogi like what What are your thoughts? I mean, did it add to your understanding of the astral realm and the yoga, you know, yogic entry into it? Yeah, the interesting connection
1: that I made right from the beginning was between these yogis leaving their body to enter into other bodies with remote viewing. And... When I was early in my pursuit of like spiritual knowledge and, you know, really in the world of like new age thinking and coming across remote viewing is I started to practice remote viewing. And I started to want to get an understanding of how it worked and there was one particular experience that freaked me the fuck out and it actually caused me to completely abandon remote viewing because in this experience i saw the potential of the kind of manipulation that could go on and really this was at a time where it was before i got into yoga this was when i was like 19 or 20 years old and I was just exploring being open to anything possible and it happened in kind of a, of a mundane way. Like it wasn't so phenomenal, but in the exchange it really showed me where I can go with it. And so I was with a few friends at a friend's apartment and we were all like smoking weed, just like hanging out, watching TV. And I was sitting on a sofa just by myself and to my right on the couch, my friend Josh and his girlfriend were sitting next to each other. And they were looking at the TV across from them, like straight ahead. And I was just like, super big, just sitting by myself. I closed my eyes and I started meditating and I could feel myself creeping over to the right in my awareness, like in my consciousness. And I immediately recognized that I was moving, but I was stationary. Like, and it was just like in this like darkness of my mind, I was moving over to the right. And I just, stayed calm and present. And I was like, okay, something's happening. I don't know what's happening, but I'm just going to stay with it. And I felt myself continuously moving over to the right, over to the right, over to the right. And then I find myself suddenly settle. And then my eyes open, but where I am is I'm sitting right where Josh's girlfriend is sitting. And I'm looking out her eyes, I'm looking at the TV, I'm in her. And I immediately feel that she's there with me and she was okay with this happening. And I thought to myself, I was like, okay, I need to prove that this is happening. So I suggested for her to look at Josh And she turned and looked at Josh. And right before she turned to look at the TV, I snapped back into my body. I opened my eyes and I watched her look at Josh and then look back at the TV. And it just creeped me the fuck out. And I was like, it just gave me shivers. And I was like, man, I'm never fucking doing that again. I was like, that was, that was too real. It was like, yeah, too fucking real. And, I just vowed from that day. I was like, no, I'm, I, I I see where this can go and I don't want to put myself in a position where I, I go into a body because that was pretty random. And luckily I was around people I knew. I was like, what if I was just doing that on the street? And I just like closed my eyes and went and I went into some body and you know, they freak the fuck out or something, or, you know, like I decide to do something weird, right? So, th- knowing that, that has led me to believe that this body of mine is programmed for yoga. And this is something that my teacher said to me when I interviewed him. So episode 33 of my podcast, I interview Yo Grishi and I asked him, you know, when did you get into yoga? And he was like, I didn't get into yoga. This body already came with yoga. <laughs>
0: and I was like, I listened to that. I remember what he said.
1: <laughs> and I was like, that makes sense. Cause when I think about my, my past and I think about like that experience. Right. And it's like, and then, you know, it's such a pure response, book, you know, like that action has been written about for hundreds of years. Mm. Right. And I was like, so then I think it's, I'm in the similar vein of that. I've just, this body was just programmed with it. And that's why it's, it's going to be for the rest of my life and onwards. And it feels really good. Like it doesn't feel like, like it, like it wasn't a condition that I agreed to or something, you know? And it, and it kind of falls upon this whole belief of people who say, Oh, I never chose to be here. You know, like they think the earth is like a prison to them. And they're like, I didn't want to fucking be here. I hate it here. Like I didn't choose to be here for me. It's quite the opposite. I know now it's like, I chose to be here and I chose this body and there was, a kind of condition or like a conditioning that took place where this body was programmed for yoga. So then while I'm in it, it lives out this yogic life and I chose it and there's nothing I can do about it now. Cause I'm in it, but all I have to do is live out my life in this way.
0: Mm. And yeah. Yeah, man. Wow. And you wanted to draw a connection to project looking glass. I mean, your own astral projection experience would you when you were when you were remote viewing through her consciousness through her perspective was it simply like looking through a window or do you think you were more in like a Like in her sort of control room, so to speak, like, do you think you were just a viewer or did you have some maybe agency within her, you know, spiritual body?
1: Yeah, it was, it was quite intimate where... It was a combination of being an observer and as if like, I was her, like, even like right now, like just if you were to take a look around your room and you kind of get a sense of where your body is and you can kind of see how you're like looking out to your eyes. Mm. It was very similar to that, but there was this like contract where she was like, you can come in, but you can't do anything You know, like you can't control me. You can't speak to me. Like there was only this okayness for this, like one subtle suggestion. And it was like in and out. And it was like, it was really interesting that like there was this whole interaction on a level that she wasn't even aware of, but she was a part of it. And she was very actually attentive of what was going on on a deeper level that consciously she wasn't aware of, but subconsciously she was very aware of. And so she was like, yeah, you can come in and have this experience, but you can't get me to do anything I don't want to do. You can only make one suggestion. It's got to be... Harmless,
0: You know, there's like these lists of things. Now, you were watching television when this occurred? Yeah. Well, what my mind goes to immediately is like, you know, obviously she was, like you said, subconsciously aware. But, I mean, what does that say about watching television that you're sort of put in a trance where this sort of thing seems to be more accessible accidentally i mean obviously not every tv watcher has also you know astral projection intentions you know you were sort of trying something were, were you intending on astral projecting in that moment or do you think it was just a side effect of sort of being buzzed and you said you're smoking a little bit and you'd practice that within that time frame at that point in your life so it was sort of present in your consciousness Were you like, okay, I'm going to try this out now? Or was it sort of like it just started happening and all of a sudden, boom, whoa. (laughs) What?
1: Yeah, it literally just started happening. It wasn't anything I intended. I just initially just felt myself moving out of my body. And something that I've done before in the past with smoking marijuana particularly is that it enables me to have these kind of outer body experiences and-
0: Yeah, one time I had, and I, I might have had more than just this, but the most memorable out-of-body experience for me was laying, like, completely on my back, flat like a starfish almost, legs sort of spaced out, um, arms at my, you know, length, and I started rising out of my body, and I actually sort of looked around the living room And I always wondered, you know, why that happened there as opposed to anywhere else. This was at my grandmother's house where I think I felt probably most comfortable compared to my, you know, childhood home. So, yeah, it it is a fleeting thing for me. I never quite, you know, as soon as I became aware of it, I returned to my body. And I wonder what that says about, you know, my relationship with cannabis, because I certainly was high at that point in time, but I was also sort of paranoid because I didn't want my grandparents to know I was high for sure. They were in the same room. <laughs> yeah, it
1: seems that cannabis enables a connection to your subconscious where there's a kind of role reversal between your seat of consciousness in your left brain and into your right brain where your ability to experience phenomenal happenings can happen more easily because of there's no more rigidness in logical thinking, right? So there isn't this automatic assessment of what's happening and and the left brain is really good at that it's really good at or compartmentalizing things where as soon as there's any kind of information the left brain is immediately attacking it and going okay where does this fit right and i think that's the disruption and why we don't regularly just leave our bodies because this part of ourselves needs to make sense of everything that's really happening consciously around us. And so in my own studies and my own work through the book that I've written, Future Light Progression, is that the right hemisphere naturally is mapping the entire environment at all times. It's taking in loads of information. And so what my theory is, is that there's, a way to seat your awareness and consciousness in that functioning. And so then your perspective of your environment takes on a whole 360 degree view of everything around you. And so it, it makes sense in when we smoke cannabis and we relax our, really our left brain, we relax this part of ourselves that is always trying to be rational and, and hyper logical. And so then we, we take on this more kind of global or kind of unified view. And when we can relax into that more and more, and that's really the key is the first step is closing the eyes, breathing, relaxing. And when there's a shift that starts to occur in our perception and what it is we start to experience internally, that we continue the process of relaxation, that if cannabis isn't there, the left brain, that part of the mind wants to immediately assess Like, oh, where am I going? What am I doing? What is happening? Why is that happening, right? Where the cannabis slows all that down. You go, oh, man, this feels good. I don't know what's happening, but I'm just going to go with it because I'm really relaxed. So, you know, there's still a dialogue, but it's slowed down and you can just breathe and you can go with it and how far you go will actually determine the attitude that you have in, in really exploring that. Right. So, you know, in my case with like that remote viewing experience or other outer body experiences is that periodically with cannabis, I went kind of further and and further. There was like a save point, almost like in a game, right? It's like, oh the, the body recognizes that you went to this point last time so let's go to this point this time and you know I was able to induce like crazy past life visions and experiences and full-on outer body experiences of seeing a, a little girl who was who was haunting me and to you know that one but I found over time, that i just naturally kind of lost interest in doing those things and saw that there's there's kind of this element of distraction and there's this element of kind of being pulled in a direction that maybe i don't want to go maybe there's an influence there that i'm not really aware of and so where i started to go is to induce a meditative state where there's a very noticeable presence of compassion and empathy and unconditional love and that it doesn't matter about leaving your body anymore. It doesn't matter about, you know, seeing anything fantastic. It's how do I go into myself and experience something even more profound which is the realm of compassion unconditional love and empathy and so that when i'm in the physical world that i'm in i can embody that and then that really is my role of a yogi and that really is my purpose as a spiritual being and it's not to prove if you you know i went into someone's body or you know did some crazy outer body thing
0: but do you do you think that really speaks to and i I know i probably made this point earlier but i'm reminded again do you think this speaks to the sickness that's inherent in our society that these things are in our modern sense geared towards self-improvement i mean It feels like the reason why they they had more time to entertain things like transforming into animals or flying through the sky. I mean, albeit maybe astrally, when things were more in accordance or harmonious, you know, relationship with, you know, how humans lived in nature. You know, of course, there was still violence and war in these times. People still had problems with government and things like that, we could probably argue that pre-industrial revolution, the, you know, the stress levels were much lessened than they are today. I mean, it does feel like, you know, this is a juxtaposition that's been made. You know, there's a lot of mystic aspects to yoga that are left sort of by the wayside in... Maybe we'll say in the pursuit of this higher ideal or this higher, you know, purpose form of yoga, it's not distracted by things like visions and, you know, metamorphosis, but all of those things are present in, you know, the history of yoga.
1: One thing I like to consider in all that is. there's there's a there's a power dynamic in play, right? And so when you look back to the eighteen hundreds and and you look back to the colonialization that it was happening between North America and in Asia's with India and like China before that is these individuals who were shaping a new kind of society through freemasonry is that they were scouring the globe for all kinds of remnants of spiritual texts and information that will help them to control the populace that they are growing right so so it makes sense that at that time they wanted to basically scrub the planet of any possibility of people living in a free kind of way where they can just explore their spirituality like the yogis of India or in Tibet or in South America or even in North America with the indigenous, that they didn't want people to believe that they could leave their body at any time and go to some amazing heavenly place. And that when they're here on the planet, they just have this whole lush garden around them and they can eat and do whatever they want. They can hunt whenever they want. And then if they want to, you know, be in contact with divinity, they can. Right. So There's this history of these people who are very aware of this power and they wanted it for themselves. They don't want the regular person to be able to sit down and be like, you know what? I'm just going to check out for a few hours. I'm going to go hang out with my higher self. I'm going to go in their realm and I'm going to like upgrade my consciousness and I'll be back. Right. They don't want people believing that they want people stressed out. They want people like focusing on fucking what Biden is doing or fucking what Beyonce is doing or whatever bullshit is out there. Right. (laughs) Like they want people fucking in agony and stressed with anxiety and wondering if they're a boy or a girl or whether they should be trans or, you know, whether they should be a social justice warrior or communist. Right. But when you go back to prior to all of that, and you go back to the indigenous, they didn't give a shit. They're like, we have everything we fucking want. And we have these crazy hallucinogenic drugs and we take them and we go to, we go onto ships and we go scour the cosmos and we do all these crazy things Mm. and so that's where i think there's this like revival and reprisal that's happening of this more natural way of being and this connection to something greater than ourselves that can take us to a place that is really the true earth and you know I've, i've expressed this before i think on our round table that we did a while back that like you know what we're experiencing in, in this reality is a more, I think of like a secondary earth and it's, and it's here to really be a playing ground for what we're going to advance into. And so whether There's this grand conspiracy of these secret societies and these like bloodline elites and how they're controlling everything. You know, you know, Santos Bonacci is a great resource for really getting into who these people are. But I think the advantage that we have, like you and I, everyone listening to this, is that we're not a part of the fucking shitty bloodline. You know, we don't have to worry about actually reincarnating as these terrible people every single generation. Cause they're stuck here. Like that's the reality. Like those elite, they made a pact that they wanted to rule this realm. They're fucking stuck here. They're never advancing. They're just here. And so the illusion is that they're in control when they're not, they're imprisoned. And we're here to learn that we actually have the freedom and that we in the solitude of our home, Without them even knowing, we can sit down, we can do the breathing techniques, we can do the asana practice, we can do the meditation and we can check out and we can learn how to get into the actual divine realm of the earth, which is safeguarded. And it circles back to all these sinister yogis these people who think that they can be on the level of these elite and that they can fight them and they can use the darkness and they end up ruining their lives. And so the secret is that compassion, unconditional love and empathy and connection to your divinity is the way out. And it's, it's not that you're trying to escape anything. It's just that when you die, which is inevitable, we are all going to die. It's okay. That you can turn around and you can look at this whole realm and you can look at the earth that is a real earth. And you can say, Oh, that was a dream. And I was preparing myself to be in the place, which is really the Eden that I want to be in or really in the heaven that I want to be in. And right. while you're here and while you know that you can stream that into this place. And that is then your presence is that you are bringing in just packages of information and downloads of content from the divinity and you're bringing it here, however you want. And it can be as simple as, you know, you still work in the warehouse, you still live with your parents, you still live in your one bedroom apartment. It doesn't matter as long as then you look at where you are and you go, Hey, this is, is where I'm going to put my presence of compassion and love and understanding and divinity. And I, it doesn't have to be some grand thing. It doesn't have to be some huge world changing thing because this is all an illusion. This is all the simulation, right? So I am going to simulate myself as someone who is compassionate and loving and and, and empathetic. And I'm just going to, be that for the people around me, for my parents, for my friends, for my coworkers, for the Uber driver, for the server at the restaurant. I was just at for my partner, for my dog, for the cat on the street. You know, it it can be really simple and down to earth exactly where you are.
0: I hear you, man. And I love how you conclude every retort response to what I have. But when we talk about the psychedelic experience, the use of cannabis and yoga, we see this sort of proliferation of drug use, although they were criminalized. I really think that that was all just a ploy to spread the drugs further throughout society and really control who was selling it, the government. But when it comes to cannabis, we see people smoking more than ever. I was just in New York City. People were smoking in the streets everywhere. Alex Stein and I did a a sort of man on the street video uh, with the pride parade and cannabis was everywhere, you know, And, and I honestly you know, all love and respect to all the people there. I don't know how spiritual many of these people were based on a lot of what their answers were to to our questions, you know, and I can't speak for the people we didn't speak to, but we we did some surveying. We took some polls and uh, no pun intended. I didn't take any. Alex did. But when it comes to the psychedelic experience, how essential is that? to yoga because i don't think that the average person although maybe they're more warmed up to the use of plant medicine i don't think they really regard it a as plant medicine they probably regard it more like a a party drug and b you know when it comes to yoga we have this again this austere image this emphasis on a clean healthy diet and a lot of people who live their life that way would consider any type of smoking you know, bad for your health. So I'm wondering, you know, when we look at this book, particularly Sinister Yogi, they talk about in the 17th century, an Englishman who traveled to India and noted that they were keeping their bodies warm with oils and they can fly and change their souls with each other or into any beast. And they can transform their bodies into what shapes they please and make them so pliable that they can draw them through a hole and wind and turn them like soft wax and then it also talks about them eating fresh herbs and roots so yeah there's clearly you know a use of psychedelics cannabis maybe not in the same sense the native americans were using psychedelics but yeah what are, what are your thoughts on that the right relationship and if cannabis is even necessary to a yo- a proper yogic practice
1: so that really depends on what lineage you're a part of or you're ascribing to. So with the Aghoris, d- definitely everything is fair game, like drinking, doing drugs. It, it doesn't matter because in their view, in their mind, everything is divine. And then that's, that's really their path is like they want to go to such extreme obscurities where even in the deepest, darkest holes of whatever cultural taboo there is, is that they can find divinity within that. And then the polar opposite would be like the Swami order and the not lineage where there's a, a, like a strictness around substances around celibacy. And so that the, the, connection to divinity is very strictly around austerity and personal austerity so that it it's not contrived in any way through an influence like a psychedelic and and there's testament to that through people like Ram Dass or Krishna Krishna Das where you know their story of giving Neem Karoli Baba like 100 over 100 hits of acid and him just shrugging it off and being like yeah this is this is nothing because of god and because right. of my connection to it so in my own case in my life journey cannabis started early in my life when i was 12 and there is many synchronicities around how my pursuit of spirituality aligned with my cannabis use and than my psychedelic use going from mushrooms to acid to dmt and then ayahuasca, is that I think particularly in the era that we're in, because of a a hyper takeover materialism that psychedelic use was this key into higher states of consciousness where in the past decades of meditation would take you there. Right. And there's also a Buddhist monk who was given mushrooms and he was like studied by a psychologist and in his meditation while on mushrooms He said that he had gone into a state of Buddhahood so profound that 30 years of meditation hadn't even done for him. And so there's value in these substances when your intention is still aligned with your spiritual pursuit. And I think the people say on the streets of New York, why, you know, they're answers to your questions were kind of a dud is possibly they just don't really have a spiritual pursuit. And there are millions and millions and millions of people on this planet that are, you know, they have no interest in it. They don't care. And, and I think that speaks to where you're at in this game, where you're at and what level you start at in being a human being. And so, you know, there's individuals like you and I, who obviously have a comprehension around deeper states of consciousness. And, you know, that's not to say that like any, any of us are meditating at a capacity of like a monk from Tibet where, you know, they can sit for 12 hours unhinged and unmoved, but there's a nuance and there's something new that's happening. And it's something that I've been paying attention to as closely as I can in an evolution of humanity. And this ascension that's taking place where we're being born into bodies that have a capacity of spiritual advancement that people even 10 years prior to our birth, couldn't do you know what i mean and it's like lends to like indigo children and some new age things but i i think it's more fundamental in the upgrades that are happening in the earth itself and the advancement that the earth is going through that reflects in the consciousness of humanity that is growing currently on the planet
0: agreed agreed and i'm in resonance with that i hope that this show can be a bridge for people to understand that they are connected in this way and that we are on an upward spiral (laughs) like a past guest nathaniel lee miller foster likes to say we're all spiraling upwards and and that's sort of the image you get when you study things like the yuga cycle and you know the kali yuga is supposed to be this like you know dark age but at the end of the dark age you go to the golden age, if my understanding is correct, or maybe vice versa. But either way, it's a cyclical thing where, you know, it oscillates over time. Yogi, we're coming to the end here. It looks like the the town that I'm in is celebrating. I can't, I can't tell if you hear the fireworks, but that's a sign for me that maybe we should wrap this one up. And yeah, open invitation to come back as soon as possible because although we sort of use this book as a jumping off point, I think really what we spent the most time talking about is, you know, your understanding of yoga. And that's why I wanted you here, you know, and, and people can learn more about yoga through your work and, and what you bring to your show. Your you're, using the same RSS feed. I hope you haven't deleted any of the old episodes because you've put a lot of really valuable stuff there and and people ought to go and check that out. Not only do you have guest interviews, but you also have monologue shows where you take people through the various chakras and other aspects of yoga. And yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what you do with yoga connection brother i really love it man so yeah please tell us a little bit more about that as we wrap up here and and yeah again thank you for for joining me for this unorthodox interview
1: yeah you're so welcome mark you know i was thinking it'd be great to actually you know come visit you in the near future so if that's a possibility for a next episode where you know we can do it in person that would be amazing and absolutely i'd Yeah, I definitely kept all the past episodes up. I was looking at it and I knew that uh, it'd still be valuable for people to check back, especially, yeah, the episodes about the chakras and the koshas. And I'm planning to finish up the last two episodes of the koshas right away here. And yeah, it's, it's... something just like dear to my heart in having these conversations and wanting to inspire people to take a look at their life in a way where they, they feel good where they're at, because we're just inundated with so much bullshit about, you know, seeing the world in this lens of, of negativity and that it's all going to shit and i just want to be an advocate to tell people like look we're ascending it's a slow process and you know the best thing that we can do for ourselves is to really amplify our sensitivity to the ascension that's happening not to the corruption like the corruption is a byproduct of the ascension the ascension is showing us that the corruption is a degradation that needs to happen so you just you let the corrupt corrupt themselves and destroy themselves and and continue living as best as you can, you know, and I want to do everything that I can to be a resource and a motivating factor to educate people on, on what they can do in the revolution that's happening. You know, I like to tell people the revolution isn't, isn't in the streets. That's a fabrication. That's all made up, you know, like all the protests, all the shit that's all being strung along behind the scenes. The true revolution is grow a garden, learn life, survival skills, you know, find some friends who have some land somewhere and learn how to be outdoors, be in nature, you know, be with trees. That's what the earth wants, man. Like the earth wants our bare feet on her and back with her. And as best as you can and i know that's hard because you know i live in a city you live in a city most of the people here live in a city but the the more we can find ourselves being out in nature by going to festivals by you know meeting people in groups that go on little excursions out and camping whatever it takes so that we can feel that our humanity isn't Mm. a part of this weird Techno trans fiery. Right, it's, right. it's back to the roots of just being well, a natural to, person. To be clearly really what yoga is
0: too, right? Of course. Of course. And I hate to correct you, but to be clear, I don't live in a city. Nice. Thank goodness I don't. I'm I still live in the town I was born in. So I don't know what that says, but uh, yeah, as expensive as it is here, it's not a city. (laughs) It's in between a bunch of cities and it's on the, we're on Long Island Sound. So I hope you do come on down over here. I mean, I would say fly out to New York City and take the train up and, uh, you know, oh
1: yeah man i've been to new york several times so i'm like yeah i'm I'm only familiar with the whole process so i'd love to man
0: yeah i'm only an hour and something up the train metro north from new york city you know i'm not that deep into connecticut but you know we can pick you up at the train station and and give you a little tour and maybe even go to some of the more sacred locations that tara and i have been researching we visited a couple of them over the past year and a half, but yeah, it's, it's like where the Susquehanna. No, well, you know, it's interesting. Mike's research on the Susquehanna river has connected in a lot of ways to what we found with the Connecticut river, which gives its name to Connecticut, but no, the Connecticut river, the Hudson river, the Delaware river, and the Susquehanna river are four separate rivers that are sort of all particularly large and distributed sort of equally along the east coast and from what i've read they were sort of like the major travel byways for the iroquois and all the different groups of native americans that lived in this area so yeah it is you know it's funny to think about it now when we Think about, like, oh, well, Mike's research is restricted to Pennsylvania. Well, if you go far enough back, I mean, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, like, these are all, like, words that didn't exist yet, and it was all one common land. So, of course, there's a lot of parallels, but no, unfortunately, this the Susquehanna would be three to four hours south of us. So, no, we could go to the Connecticut River, which is about an hour and a half, east of here or we can go along some other smaller rivers and yeah man either way no matter what we do i'm sure it'll be a great time it's always awesome to meet fellow podcasters i'll add you to the list met a couple of folks that i've had on the show so far so yeah it's it's a natural progression and it's about time so if you're willing to, to fly out here brother let's make it happen Oh yeah, of course.
1: I've been, you know, feeling a call back out there. So this is a great opportunity. And, you know, I trust, you know, whatever journey adventure we go on is going to be great. So yeah, I'll certainly keep in contact so we can plan
0: that out. Right on. Well, thank you so much for joining me and everyone listening. Please do go support Yogi Zorananda, his podcast is linked in the episode description, and you can listen to the podcast on the same app that you're listening to this show right now. So please go and tune in and do yourself a favor. As for now, enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we are. Shorter intro for this episode probably a short outro as well. I am not feeling all that great. I don't know what it is, a little summer sickness or something. I had chills, fever, ache, whatever, all kinds of uncomfortable stuff that left me bedridden for the past two days. So there is a delay, only a few hours. This episode is coming out in the afternoon. Normally they are released early in the morning, so people who had a job like I used to have when I was a bakery delivery guy, get some new content, you know? You wake up at 3 in the morning, and all the same podcasts that you tuned into yesterday are all that's available? Nah, not anymore. The My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast serving you fresh podcasts early in the morning. That early bird special. Anyways, this is going to be a shorter one. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I'm a little congested. My head and my stomach are feeling a little off, so I could use all the support from the audience that I can get, not feeling well, being bedridden, I haven't been able to go and do the odd jobs that I normally do, so please support the podcast uh, at MyFamilyThinksImCrazy.com. All the links are there. You can also look in the episode description for all the ways to send a one-time donation, but like I said, you got to keep this one short. I'm not feeling that well. I just didn't want to miss a podcast day because I love all the podcast listeners You make my day. So thank you so much. And I hope you support the show. Cause, uh, I could use it now more than ever. Thank you. Enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. Oh, and be sure to subscribe to Yogi Zorananda's podcast, The Yoga Connection. You can listen to it wherever you're listening to this podcast. Just go ahead and search The Yoga Connection or click the link in the description. Here's a little sample of what you'll hear when you tune into The Yoga Connection with Yogi Zorananda. When your body is growing, it is how so many change, changes are chemically in the society, loss of all. Yes, I do have all of that. But my daily yoga practice is the key to keep me balanced. Balance in physically, balance in the chemically, and balance to stay connected to with my soul. And for me, if it is my soul is happy, no matter what, I can balance it. If my soul is contracted, then no matter how the environment is outside is good, I can't balance. Mm. So yoga is the practice to recharge your soul.